Welcome to the Empower App Show. I'm your host, Leo Dion. If you're listening to this episode, please go ahead and subscribe if you haven't. We've got a full schedule of episodes coming into 2020. So love to have you continue listening to the show. And if you have any feedback, you can reach me on Twitter at Leo G. Dion. Today we have with us Guy Rambo. Hey, Guy. Hey, Leo. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you? Good. So it looks like Apple has this new developer app out. What do you think about it as far as an improvement over the just simple WWDC app? I think it's an improvement. I mean, the WWDC app was uh, kind of overloaded. If yes. you looked at the content, it was not about just about the event anymore. It has these videos that are not from WWDC. They They have videos from these tech talks they do and also... Other videos, like when they release a new hardware, they will release new videos. Right, for like a new display size or something like that. Yeah, and uh, this year they released something, I think, about metal on the new processor. So it was already getting disconnected from the event. So I think it makes perfect sense for it to be an Apple developer app and not just a WWDC app. So And also, like one thing that I found really cool is that you can even enroll in the development uh, program. I mean, it's only for the US right now, but I think that's really cool. They are streamlining the process. So can you like use Apple Pay to pay for the hundred bucks or what? I don't know, to be honest. We should find someone who who tried that out, but I suppose you could. I don't know. Remember when you had to send a fax to Apple to enroll? (laughs) I was explaining to somebody about the stupid Duns number the other day because I don't even know if you need that anymore. Do you know what I'm talking about? You do, yeah. Actually, something funny happened recently. I am actually opening up a developer account for my business. I only have my individual one at the moment, but I'm opening up for my business. And I was already dreading uh, having to get the the Duns number. (laughs) And when you go to sign up, they show you a form where you can uh, fill in your business details and they look up if you already have a Duns number. And for some reason that I don't quite understand, my business already had a Duns number. So I don't know why. I don't know if it was my accountant (laughs) who did it, but hey, I guess I don't have to worry about that. Yeah, recently I had to change the quote-unquote address for my business because it's really just a mailbox. And they're like, yeah, we need official letterhead. And so I was like, okay. So I like found my logo and like put it in a Google Doc, did a (laughs) quote-unquote official letter to Google and emailed the PDF to them or uploaded it actually. They set up a uploader thing. And I was like, okay, whatever. Like, this is from the official CEO of Bright Digit. It's so funny when uh, digital and the, the real world kind of collapse into each other. Right. Where you get like this thing like, you need an official letterhead. But like, anyone <laughs> can make one in Microsoft Paint or something. <laughs> it's like one of those memes where it's like two people, but they're like the same exact person. And it's like, <laughs> I'm the head of marketing and I'm also the head of uh, legal and I'm also the CEO of the company as well. When you're this small, there's uh, you wear a lot of hats, so to speak. So, have you looked at the Cocoa Hub app at all? Yes, I have. It's a really cool app. Yeah, Pedro Carrasco. Hopefully, I said that right. It's a pretty cool app. I think it's just in test flight right now. But mm-hmm. like, I love these uh, developer community apps that we have now. They're just a great way to reach out beyond just the scope of what only Apple provides. Yeah, that's really nice and. 
I hope they can actually release it, but you know how app review can be. Yes. Maybe they'll have an issue with, oh, you're showing third-party content or something. But uh, yeah, I sure hope they can release it. It's a really cool app. Hey, I wanted to let you know that Empower App Show is looking for sponsors and patrons. Our audience is growing and we'd love to showcase you, your company, and your product on our show. If you want to be a patron, you can find us at patreon.com slash empowerapps.show. Or if you want to be a sponsor, reach out to me personally at leo at brightdigit.com. Your support is greatly appreciated and we look forward to showcasing your business and product on our show. So I know you do the WWDC Mac app, correct? Mm-hmm. What are your plans as far as that app, especially now that we have, uh, they've rebranded the WWDC iPhone app to a just a Apple developer app? Well, um, we haven't uh, really thought about it much, but uh, for now, the uh, consensus is uh, let's keep doing what we're doing. Of course, we wouldn't be able to like add enrollment to the developer program in our app that that's something that's not possible <laughs> but uh, our app is mostly focused on consuming content from WWDC so the videos and transcripts and stuff like that and there was also a discussion right after uh, Catalyst was announced and even before like when it was uh, still called Marzipan that what if Apple comes out with a WWDC app for the Mac that's basically their iOS, their iPad app as a Catalyst app? Should we keep going with our app? Should we stop? And we came to the conclusion that it was worth it to keep it going because it's different from its focus is different from Apple's app. And I find that at least searching content in our app, I think it's better than yes. I can never find the videos I want in Apple's app. And with our app, Maybe it's because I know the app better because I made it, but <laughs> I I find stuff way easier there. So I think we're going to keep it going for the foreseeable future. Yeah, and it's just a lot easier when you're like developing on Xcode and you just want to pull a video up just to pull up a, like an actual Mac app as opposed to like pulling up the browser and then, right, like it's difficult to find the specific tutorial or video you're looking for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you can download videos and you can search and the search includes transcripts. So it happens sometimes. I'm. I know there's something in DubDub about some particular new class I'm using, so I'm just gonna like search for the class name in the WWDC app, and it finds because in the transcript there's the class name, so it's going to find any video that mentioned that class name. So that's like a really, really powerful search feature. Unfortunately, as all developers know, Apple's documentation, especially this year, about the new stuff is not the best. So you end up having to use WWDC videos as documentation many times, which is not ideal, but at least we have the tools to do that. Yeah, and we will provide, if you're not familiar with the WWDC Mac app, you definitely should check it out. We'll provide a link to that in the show notes as well. So the big thing I wanted to talk about today was future-proofing your apps. I know you've done a lot of, along with like Stephen Trout and Swift, you've done a lot of like deep diving into like the code behind what's going on with a lot of the new software that comes out, especially when it's in beta. So I know you have some perspective on it, but like, especially with the AirPods Pro, we're kind of seeing this shift towards augmented reality, certainly with like AR kit, but there's other technologies I'm more than sure that are coming out in the Apple space and new hardware. What are some ways 
that you think developers could perhaps best future-proof their apps. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And um, there's uh, someone else, uh, I think Adam Bell, he's been doing this as well for longer than I've been doing this. And he has a talk he gave at a conference. Uh, We can maybe find that talk and and leave a link in the show notes. Yep. Where he talks exactly about this, uh, about future-proofing your apps. And when you at least have an idea of what's going to come up in the future, there are things you can do to be prepared for it. And one of the things I always uh, tell my fellow developers is try to not deviate too much from what Apple expects you to do. And I'm talking in, in terms of code. Like there are these crazy architectures people use on iOS that are derived sometimes from architectures from other platforms and then sometimes they are specific to iOS. I even made this website, iosarchitecture.top, which generates random architecture names. (laughs) It's kind of funny. It's obviously a joke. And (laughs) when you do this, many of these architectures, they deviate too much from what the OS and frameworks expect you to do. And uh, what happens in the end is when you want to adopt new features, let's say a new extension type that Apple releases or some new device form factor that requires changes, you end up suffering because your dependencies, the framework you're using to architect your app made some assumptions and those assumptions are not true anymore. And there's also many times you get something for free from the framework or from the OS or from, let's say, UIKit. And if you're not doing things the UIKit way, you end up suffering as well. So that's a tip I usually give. You can architect an app very well and still use basically model view controllers, but there are ways to architect it still using that, but keeping it sane and not having like the issues that people tend to have with that architecture. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I did a talk recently on parallelism and concurrency and asynchronicity and how my big thesis or point I think I wanted to make, hopefully I made, but was like staying within the boundaries of the APIs that Apple provides and not trying to go outside of that uh, is going to help you in the future because... Whatever abstraction Apple provides, they can change the underlying close-to-metal code underneath as new hardware comes out. And I think like when you start depending on third-party dependencies that might try to do their own little thing, and in that space, I felt like promises and futures are kind of the biggest weakness that Apple doesn't really provide. And they're trying to get away with that with Combine, but I don't feel like Combine is really meant for that. But I think that the thing is, is like whatever Apple provides, they're going to at least support it and maintain it in the long run. And if new hardware or new software comes out, you can know that Apple is going to make sure that that stuff works to its best on whatever hardware or software that is. Yeah, and I mean, it's easy to say now like, oh, but uh, iOS 13 is so buggy and uh, the some APIs don't work. And that is true, but that's also an argument for doing it Because you have to worry about things breaking in Apple land. So if you go all in 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 one of these architectures, especially if it includes dependencies, 
Then you have to worry about Apple breaking stuff and also your third-party vendor breaking stuff. Right, exactly. And sometimes they're not going to be there for you. That third party is not going to be there necessarily, nor does it like, is it dependent upon that? And it seems like one of the biggest places where I think that you're going to see the most important part of future-proofing your app is in the UI. Mm -hmm. I don't know what you've found as far as like augmented reality stuff. But it certainly seems like even with the AirPods Pro, that seems like them dipping in their toes in audio-based augmented reality. But like Swift UI seems to be that push towards like a newer UI paradigm. Yeah, I think they want to try and abstract away the uh, implementation details uh, of how you render stuff on screen. If you think about it, the uh, UI kit model derived from the app kit model, which derived from the next step model, which was like from the 80s or something. Right. I think it, it was time to, to abstract away these implementation details of how you actually put stuff on screen. And a declarative approach like they did with SwiftUI, I think is a good approach. Of course, it's very new and then there are many issues and it's not complete yet, but I think they are on the right track there to, to give us a unified API, even though it's not like code once run everywhere that never right. works very well, but it's almost that, but it's learn once and code everywhere. So if I know how to make an iOS app using a SwiftUI, I can transfer that knowledge to watchOS and tvOS and the Mac and whatever future AR platform that they're preparing for us. So I think it's a good approach, definitely. What's your thoughts on like AR and where they're going, at least in the next year? Yeah, I've been a critic of AR for a long time. There's an article I wrote for Sundell's WWC website. You can link that as well. And I talked about how, to me, only makes sense when you have some specific hardware that you can use because most of these uh, AR things we have on our smartphones and uh, tablets, they don't really make sense. They're not better in any way than just using a regular UI. They're just like cool to show your friends or to be amused one or two times, but they are not actually useful except for maybe like the measure app which is really cool, and I actually use it every now and then. Does it work actually pretty well? Because I know I had issues on it earlier. Yeah. I mean, these days on my 11 Pro, it works really well. Okay, Of okay. course, it's not very precise. It's not going to be precise to the millimeter, but mm -hmm. I find that it's precise enough for like, if you want to see if something is going to fit somewhere, like uh, some furniture or something, I find it good enough for that. Let's say... Uh, I'm metric, so let's say a centimeter of precision thereabouts. Okay. But yeah, so I think some sort of AR headset or glasses, like people call them, is needed to actually take advantage of AR and to make it useful, actually useful and better than, say, a smartphone. So do you think they're going to come out with like a specific pair of glasses or do you think they're going to do more like a Google Cardboard thing? From what we heard and, and seen so far, looks like it's going to be like a headset and not okay. as wearable as we think it would be. But this could be just a, a stepping stone towards the uh, fully wearable thing, which, I mean, realistically, I think it's a little bit far 
It's not something that, that's uh, totally feasible these days with the tech we have, at least not in scale. Right, right. Yeah, it's hard to imagine today being able to come out with something. Unless they actually come out with a car, that's the other place where you could see like an augmented reality display being helpful. Mm -hmm. But like, yeah, it's not down the line anytime soon. It almost seems like where they're dipping the toes in augmented reality is like with the AirPods Pro, the whole like transparency and noise cancellation stuff. I could see how like language translation, almost like a, is it like a babblefish? I'm not a Doug Adams fan exactly, but <laughs> being able to translate audio on demand kind of like what Google does after they bought WordLens seems like kind of the future of where augmented reality even makes more sense than visually. Oh yeah, that that would be really cool. And uh, other things as well, like currently the noise canceling and the transparency mode, they are two separate modes, but I've seen some people uh, speculate that we could see a mode that combines those two and like only lets through a specific type of audio, say like people speaking let's say i want to eliminate any noise but if someone speaks to me i want to listen to them that could be a cool feature to have and i think we're getting there in terms of being able to do it yeah just having some sort of even like maybe opening an api audio api would be really interesting yeah definitely but Going back to the visual aspect, I think what they're working on right now is a platform for AR apps that are used in headsets. And from the stuff that leaked in betas and things like that, it looks like this would be something that even supports third-party devices, not only something made by Apple. So this could be interesting. Oh, interesting. So like you'd have a device that would somehow hook up wirelessly or physically to the iPhone. And then that device would then, third-party based, would then display augmented reality data, I guess. Yeah, there's even like a, a nympho.plist key that you, apps can have that tells this uh, system that this is an AR-enabled app. So it would be kind of similar to CarPlay in a sense, yep. where this would be like a separate view into the same app. So it's definitely intriguing. What are some other things you can think of? So we talk a lot about the UI and Swift UI. Like, do you think that if you were going to build an app today, are you ready yet to commit to like Swift UI or would you still stay with UIKit? To me, making a Swift UI app these days is kind of like making a, a Swift app when Swift 1 was announced. Yeah, I agree. It's uh, probably going to change uh, significantly. And it's not that you can't do it. I know people are doing it, especially for the watch. I think if you are making a new Apple Watch app these days, there's absolutely no reason to use WatchKit unless supporting previous devices is really important to you. But I think on the watch, it's not that important. So I would definitely go with SwiftUI for the watch just because it is the only way to actually make a native Apple Watch app. But if I am starting a new iOS or, or Mac app, I don't think I would use SwiftUI today. I think it's still very new and uh, you're probably going to end up facing limitations and issues, especially when they change things in the future. Yeah, I agree. Like it seems, and I'm familiar with building like watch apps when Swift first came out and like building a watch app now 
Swift UI definitely feels like they could change vocabulary pretty easily or just some of the APIs. And you could tell that that's where they started Swift UI is on the watch because it just makes total sense, you know, talking about building a watch app, you know, I'm building the heart twitch and it feels so natural to use Swift UI and get all that like MVVC combined and publishing subscribing models all set up so easily, so much more sophisticated than WatchKit and so much more easier to get started. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, uh, from what we heard, it was started as uh, something for the Apple Watch. So it really shines. The Apple Watch is where you can absolutely do things that weren't possible before without Swift UI, which is not the case for iOS or the Mac. Those platforms already had a native option where you could do anything. So Swift UI only brings a new idiom to the table. And I think one, uh, and speaking about future-proofing, Swift UI is definitely a good way to future-proof. Maybe not right now, because it is going to change. It's likely that it's going to change. And I'm not sure if they promised to not make any breaking changes or not. I, I don't remember if they did or not. But it is going to change. But when it's stable enough, it abstracts away so many things from you as a developer, like dark mode and uh, the trait collections, all that stuff is nicely abstracted. So it is probably the best way to make sure that new form factors will work with your app just fine. Just not right now because it's so new. Yeah, I think for the vast majority of apps out there, backwards compatibility, I think, is much more of a concern. And that's where like UI kit or app kit makes sense. But if you're building an app that you're like, I don't even care if it's going to be built upon it like a year or a year or two. That's where I think Swift UI makes a lot more sense if you're willing to deal with whatever changes come out in June for Swift UI. And I don't know if they're going to do breaking changes. It'd be interesting to see how much they hold on to it. I feel like it's going to be more like a slow deprecation mm-hmm. than necessarily breaking changes like we had to deal with with Swift 2 and 3. Yeah, I think the breaking changes were all done during the beta cycle. They, they changed a lot of stuff. And the reason was so that they could uh, fix the, the API so that they wouldn't have to break things again in the future. But there's also, when you are using something like Swift UI that, that's very new, you end up having to do all of these workarounds for things that aren't quite working correctly. So you end up creating workarounds or stuff that should be automatic, but you have to do manually because uh, it's not quite ready yet. And then when they eventually fix those things, then you have all this old code that you hopefully can delete, but we know that many times it's not deleted. And uh, sometimes uh, your workaround behaves slightly differently than the fixed version that comes out later. So there's always issues when you adopt something that's brand new. Yeah, it sounds like what you're talking about is like, let's say you have something that works perfectly fine in SwiftUI version 1. And then somebody installs iOS 14 and then all of a sudden they need to change the way they do their architecture or do certain procedures because it doesn't work that way in iOS 14. Does that sound like what you're kind of talking about? Yeah, yeah. That's one of the things that could happen. The other thing I can think of is like doing like a collection view. It makes complete sense, I think, to do a collection view in UI kit, like rather than trying to hack something together in Swift UI. Luckily, like it seems 
like the UI kit, Swift UI, Interop works pretty decently. I've had to pull stuff from UI kit whenever I'm working on a Swift UI app pretty easily. And it seems like they understand that it's going to be a slow transition, not something that's just going to be completely from the ground up. Kind of like what they did with Swift and Objective C. Yeah, that's true. It's kind of like currently there's no spinner. There, there's no activity indicator in Swift UI, so you have to resort to UIKit if you want one. There's that boilerplate code that I reuse like every single time that's just basically about migrating UI activity indicator over to Swift UI. Like, I don't know how many <laughs> times I've written that now. Yeah. So the other thing I wanted to talk about was development machines. Did you get the new MacBook Pro? Yep, I'm using it as we speak. Yeah, because I remember you talking about it in a previous episode with John Sundell about that. What's your thoughts on it? Well, um, not many. Like, it's a really good machine. Usually when there's some issue, then you have stuff to say, right? Yeah. <laughs> but I like the keyboard. Uh, I, I like that we have a physical escape key, even though the other one didn't bother me that much. But uh, it's nice to have a real one. Something that I didn't think would make a difference to me, but the fact that the Touch ID button is separated from the touch bar is nice. It's easier to feel for it when something asks for Touch ID, while before I had to always look to find where the sensor was. It also has a, a matte texture instead of shiny one previous one had. And it's also really fast. I have the 8-core i9 version, and it compiles... Uh, huge projects in Xcode really quickly. Is that what you're using right now? Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I've tended to shift towards like using a desktop machine. I Right now I'm using my iMac, which I really like. It's a one I bought back in June that I just upgraded. And I was hesitant about upgrading my laptop over the summer just because precisely because of the keyboard issues. So I ended up just upgrading the hard drive on it. And then I'm probably going to wait a couple more years before I get a new MacBook Pro. But one of the things I've thought about, and I don't know how, I probably place a higher priority on it than it should. But one of the other things besides keyboard issues that have held me back was like what their plan is as far as ARM-ready Macs. Mm -hmm. The transition is inevitable, but then how is that going to change? Speaking of future-proofing, the way we develop apps like is that going to be a concern at all? Or is it just pretty much everything is going to be like, as long as you write it in Swift, you just have to recompile it for the new processor, I guess. I think for the average developer, that's not going to be an issue at all. We've been abstracted from the actual uh, underlying platform and architecture for a while now. Like we're at a point where you can check a box in Xcode for an iPad app and build and run on the Mac, which is a separate platform. We already had that for the simulator, which runs on, on your Mac's platform and architecture. So for like 99.9% of apps, it doesn't make any difference, really. It's just going to be a recompile. And that almost goes back to what we we're talking about, about staying within the confines of Apple's abstractions is going to like future-proof your app. Because as long as you can compile it, it's more going to be an issue if there's some sort of developer tool that is written in like C or C++, for instance. and it's Or like Swift 2. Or Swift 2, that's true. Where like you need that tool specifically and it can't compile in the new processor. But I think these days, 
most of like developer tools or most of the code that's out there can build cleanly for any platform. And that's um, in huge part thanks to Raspberry Pi, which is uh, ARM. So I think there are several different ARM variants that are used in the, the Raspberry Pi because it has several different uh, variations. Like there's yeah. the, yep. the mini one and uh, the, the B plus and uh, all of the, the different ones. I have lots of them and uh, I love it. And you can like compile the, the Swift toolchain to Raspberry Pi. And uh, I mean, all of the little command line tools we, we use, the most common ones at least, or at least like the major ones, they all compile on Raspberry Pi. So I don't see why they wouldn't compile for an ARM Mac as well. So I think we're going to be fine there. The issue is going to be like you say, like if you use like really crazy tool that no one knows about and there's only this one copy on GitHub that someone released 10 years ago. No, worse. <laughs> it's SourceForge. <laughs> oh, yeah. SourceForge. <laughs> oh, my God. I remember that guy. So, <laughs> so yeah, I think if that's the case, then it's, it's going to be a problem maybe. But if it's written like C++ or C, maybe you can just tweak the, the make file a bit and right. make it, it work. So... I think it's going to be fine, really. I think we are very well prepared for a transition like that one. I want to ask, uh, since you brought it up, Raspberry Pi, have you done Swift development on the Raspberry Pi? I've done even better. I've done um, graphical Swift development, so GUI Swift apps on the Raspberry Pi. All right. So, yeah, I want to hear more about this. When you say graphical development, are you doing like some sort of... GTK or what exactly are you doing? That's exactly what I used. Then this was nothing like production ready by any means or nothing serious, but I was a toy, making like a toy weather station using a, a Raspberry Pi. And I bought one of those TFT uh, touch screens that you can hook up to a Raspberry Pi. Nice. I really wanted to write Swift. So I uh, did all the stuff you have to do to make Swift uh, run on the Raspberry Pi. And there is this project, I think it's called Swift GTK. So very okay. fairly simple. It's bindings to use uh, GTK from Swift. So yeah, it wraps GTK. Uh, GTK, I believe, is a C API. So it's uh, very easy to wrap in Swift. And um, yeah, you can use GTK from Swift and, and make uh, graphical apps for the Raspberry Pi. What model Raspberry Pi would you recommend? If you want to do like development and really experience the full breadth of functionality, get the, I think it's the B+, which is like the latest one. Whatever okay. the, the latest, because when people listen to this a few months from now, there's probably going to be a new one. <laughs> so <laughs> I think it's the Raspberry Pi 4 B+, yeah. plus, something yeah, like I that. Yeah, I think it's, it's a like, 4. Yeah, that's like top of the line one, which is, I, I don't know, like, 35 bucks or something. It's super right, cheap. Right. But it has a quite beefy processor. You can play like HD content on it, even uh, over HDMI. So it's a really powerful little machine that you can do basically anything you want to. So it's really cool. But another one that, that's really nice, and we're going to have to find the link because I'm not sure if, I'm, if I got the name right, if it's the Raspberry Pi Zero, I think it's called which is um, this really tiny little board. It's even smaller than the regular Raspberry Pi. It's really, really, really small. So you can create like really cool embedded projects. It's really good to, let's say, hook up a sensor to and create your uh, own little HomeKit device using HomeBridge. I've been having lots of fun with that. 
Homebridge, though, is not Swift written, correct? No, that's uh, Node.js. Okay. Yeah, Homebridge is essentially like a Node.js server where you can basically create an interface from one set of devices over to HomeKit, essentially, correct? Using Homebridge, you create your own HomeKit bridge device, which you can configure to talk to devices that are not HomeKit enabled. So if you have some sort of uh, camera or sensor or lights or whatever device you have that does not have HomeKit support, you can hook it up to a HomeBridge device. And HomeBridge will do all the work that's necessary to make it talk to HomeKit. So that's a really powerful feature. One thing I've wanted to dabble with, if I could find time, is setting up, like, actually writing some sort of, like, HomeKit server in Swift on a Pi. Like, I'd be curious what protocols... Because I know, like, as far as HomeKit, like, you can build kind of your own HomeKit device, but you just have to, like, override or it asks you something if you want to, like, add a device that isn't actually HomeKit approved. Is that how it works exactly, or...? Yeah, that's true. It used to be that to be a HomeKit device, you'd have to have the special chip that only Apple provides or something for authentication. But these days, you can emulate a HomeKit device completely in software if you want, even on your Mac. And then you you can plug it into your HomeKit home in uh, the Home app. Uh, So much home there. (laughs) It's just going to say like, this is not a certified uh, accessory or whatever. And you just say, okay, and it adds it. Yeah, I definitely want to dabble into that a bit. I've got, uh, I've invested in Philips Hughes and an Echo B as well. And like, I love HomeKit and how well it works. Yeah, same. Uh, it's really cool. I have almost all my apartment is, is HomeKit lighting and sensors and things like that. So cool to not have to flip a switch when you want to turn on a light. You just walk into the room and it turns on. That's really cool. Yeah, I agree completely. So, I know we talked a couple of years ago on iFreaks about the Apple Watch. And I'm curious where you think the Apple Watch is now when it comes to development. I want to say it's like a solid enough device. I would give it like an essentially all that seems like what's going on. And I said this in a previous episode is like, just keep upgrading the battery and the processor. And it's just going to get to a point where it can actually be like an independent device with actual apps. The only thing that restricts it is just the size of the display. But I think there's still a lot of room for development when it comes to apps on the watch. What do you think, besides obviously making the screen size ridiculously and uselessly big, like what else could make the Apple Watch a more robust platform? Well, first of all, it's way better than how it was when we last spoke about this in in that uh, episode. Now we have like a native way to make apps. We have a built-in app store. Uh, You can make an app that's just for the Apple Watch that doesn't need an iOS app. But there are two major pieces of the puzzle that I think are still not there yet. The first one, I mean, besides the one you mentioned that battery life could be better, definitely. But we need uh, in-app purchases. Because currently, if you have a watch-only app, you can't have in-app purchases, which kind of makes it pointless because people don't pay for apps anymore, sadly. So best way for you to actually make money with apps is to make the app free and then charge for in-app content, uh, like uh, in-app purchases or consumable things or like a subscription, depending on your business model. Mm -hmm. Paid upfront apps, they are pretty much dead. Right. Um, there are very few 
paid upfront apps still make money these days in the App Store. So that's one thing, in-app purchases. The second one would be some form of biometric authentication, which I think is necessary to be able to actually make the Apple Watch completely independent. Explain this a little bit more. So say that there's an Apple Watch that is completely independent and you can set it up without another Apple device, so without an iPhone. You will have to authenticate with your Apple ID at least once, which could be done by typing your password on screen, which is awful. It is awful. but, But you'd have to do it once And then, because there are these displays coming out now, and there's technology nowadays for an on-screen fingerprint sensor. So let's say you only have to type your password once, which is awful, but it's just this one time when you're setting up your device. And from then on, you just put your finger somewhere. Could be on screen, could be on the side button, whatever. I think that would be necessary for it to be independent because no one's going to want to type their password all the time or any password. Right. Yeah, I totally get what you mean now. So speaking of the in-app purchase thing, so I'm looking at like, how do I monetize? We've talked about like Heart Twitch, my live streaming project that uses Vapor and the Apple Watch. I was thinking about, okay, in-app purchase specifically, like how do you even monetize an independent watch app? And the workaround that I'm thinking of doing, and I've never done this before, should be fairly simple is charging on the web front end as a way to get around it. Cause I can't think of any other way to like monetize an independent watch. app short of just creating a, an iPhone component. Yeah. Or you can wait till next September. <laughs> <laughs> it's exactly. very likely that they will add it. I think it's, it's a major shortcoming. So I, I think it's very likely that this will be added. Well, if you charge, on this web, though, then I don't have to deal with a 30% cut, though, too. That would be an advantage. But what would Apple think about it when they come out with in-app purchases? Would they maybe have trouble with it? Oh, who knows, right? So I, I don't know, but I think it's a good idea. And I would love to for you to try it and, and tell us what happens. Tell us what happens when Apple does do in-app purchase and they decide they're going <laughs> to no longer approve the app. Yeah. I will let you know. I'll keep you updated on that. But I mean, if you don't, I think you can follow the same rule as on iOS. If you don't actually advertise in the app itself, like go to this website to subscribe or to purchase. I think if you don't do that, it's going to be fine. Right. And I think like the authentication thing is like in the whole entering in text, like thank God, at least now they added a way where you can enter in the text through your iPhone. And it's not perfect by any means. Speaking of Swift UI, the whole text input thing is not, <laughs> it's very okay. <laughs> uh, it's better than what we had before. But like, yeah, that's where they can improve things is like text input and things like that. And just making more robust controls in that regard. And it, you can especially see that with authentication. Yeah. Another option would be, let's say this initial setup can't quite be done on the watch itself. Maybe they could say, because who does not have a phone these days? Everyone has a phone. Everyone who would buy this has a phone. Right. But let's say they have an Android phone. Maybe Apple could release an Apple Watch app for Android where you can do the initial setup of the watch using this app and maybe like change settings and almost all the same stuff we do in the Apple Watch app on the iPhone right now. They could release an app like that for Android. Well, couldn't they just have like a web front end? Like speaking of HomeKit, right? All these devices, all you need to do is like 
authenticate once and then change all the settings through the web front end. But it has to talk to the watch over Bluetooth. I don't think you can do that with a web portal. Over Wi-Fi? I don't know how that would work. Like you need an encrypted peer-to-peer connection to the watch. Got it. Yeah, so I don't think that would be possible on the web. Yep. Maybe they could figure something out. But I think like everyone has a phone. Everyone who, who would buy an Apple Watch has some sort of phone. Right. Either an iPhone or an Android phone. So I think they could release, say, an Android app. Because if you could do that and if you can make it completely independent from the companion device, whatever phone that is, then it will be problem solved. Like, okay, you still need some device to set it up initially, but after that, it's free and you don't need it anymore. Yeah, I agree completely. So we've got six months away till WWDC. Any thoughts on future software projects or anything as far as like, are you going to do more hacking on the Raspberry Pi specifically or anything else? Yeah, I actually want to do more Raspberry Pi stuff uh, than I've done so far. I have the, this uh, little project I, I'm doing for the, I have several different types of sensors that I'm uh, connecting to uh, an Arduino and that talks to the Raspberry Pi. So I want to try to make it into a little HomeKit device that I made as nice as I can make it at home with limited uh, knowledge and tools. But I think it's going to be fun. And uh, also, I, I do have some some map ideas I'm working on, but I'm not ready to to share those yet. Shh, we'll keep it a secret. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely want to take a look at a Raspberry Pi over the holidays and see if I can build something if I have some spare time. Yeah, holidays are a great time to toy with things you haven't had the time to yet. Like you can, if you have some little bit of time left from from the activities, definitely a good time to experiment. Yeah, I agree. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Do you have anything else you want to talk about before we close out? I think we're good. And where can people find you online? I'm on Twitter at underscore inside. And there's also my blog, rambo.codes, which I'm planning on uh, doing some uh, changes to it and then doing like an overhaul of, of my website and actually start writing more. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm really looking forward to reading more of your articles on there. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. If folks want to get a hold of me, they can find me on Twitter at Leo G. Dion. My company is Bright Digit at brightdigit or brightdigit.com. Please subscribe to the podcast and we love to hear back from you if you have any questions or any feedback about the show. Thanks again and we'll talk to you later.